Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome to a another live broadcast of the Nursing Home Podcast. Had the opportunity through this forum to meet some of the heroes, leaders, and all different players in the nursing home and senior care space. And it's really been an honor and a pleasure uh, to meet with each and every one of them. We know that the nursing home world has suffered tremendously through the coronavirus. Everybody knows this already. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. But there's been so much misinformation. There's been, there's been almost an agenda. If nursing homes weren't beaten up before today, if nursing homes weren't um, created, branded as a death machine, as an abuse factory uh, by the media, by saying that this is where you send seniors, you know, this is like hell before hell, um, then now for sure this is what so many places are portraying it. And unfortunately, for the most part, nothing could be further from the truth. Some of the greatest people on the planet are those who literally put their lives on the line, and they're not necessarily getting you know millions of dollars to do this. Especially you know nurses and CNAs, the line staff, leadership, and uh, every single department. They're doing this through coronavirus, and when when most of the country, most of the world is scared to open their front door, scared to touch an Amazon package that gets delivered to your house before you wipe it down and disinfect it and, and pray to it and do whatever you do to make sure that it's safe. And then you have these people who are literally a business as usual, gowning up and just going right into the trenches. And instead of being hailed as hero- heroes, and I know there are some efforts and the hashtag it's me movement specifically for the nursing home world. Uh, and there've been, you know, healthcare heroes and all these other things. But at the end of the day, um, those are nice initiatives, something nice, to, nice uh, sign to hang up on your window and something to you know maybe post on social media. But the mainstream media, the places where most people look, uh, you get to find it how you will. But the general media opinion is so not like this and blaming things on nursing homes. Um, and we're not going to go into a whole long monologue here. We, we, we know how little the world knew about coronavirus we know how little the world knew about managing it about policies about procedures and of course nursing homes immediately were expected to manage this as if this is something that comes every year as if this is something that's that's here all the time and instead of receiving the support uh that that was desperately needed instead it was being penalized being uh being shamed um coming in and in a punitive uh, type of way, many times now. Of course, there are exceptions, and there are there were supports that were given to facilities by certain agencies. But by and large, it's been quite a tough run. And I hope I'm not putting words into our guest's mouth. And we're about to hear from her in a moment. So 
I really wanted to bring on some nursing home administrators. These are, for those who don't know, they're the ones who are basically the boss of the nursing home, the one in charge of the entire operation in the building. And they are the ones who are making all the tough decisions. They are the ones who are making sure that the staff are there, making sure they have what they need, doing whatever it takes to get the job done. And they're the, uh, many times, the unsung heroes of the, of the facility. They get all the blame and usually they don't get the credit. So today we bring all the way from Phoenix, Arizona, Brian Schmitz, who's been here, been through it all, and he's going to talk a little bit about what that's like. So welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, Brian. Thank you for Thank joining you. today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and it's an honor. Now, before we even go too deeply into this, you know, we just met a few minutes ago and mm -hmm. our listeners certainly don't know who you are. Viewers don't know. I mean, maybe they do, but uh, for those who don't, <laughs> not, not yet. Uh, maybe soon you will be. But for those who don't know, can, can you just give a little brief overview of how you ended up becoming, uh, in, how you evolved into your professional role where you are right now? Sure. Um, I actually graduated from college with a music therapy degree, um, and I moved out to Arizona and did music therapy for about seven years. Um, and I ended up at a short-term rehab that had just opened. I was working on my master's at the time and I was focusing on HR. And my administrator noticed that I was showing interest in the business side of things. And she said, hey, have you ever thought about being a nursing home administrator? And I kind of looked at her like, well, most kids don't dream about being a nursing home administrator. You want to be a teacher or a dancer or something like that. So. Um, I added some classes to my master's. Um, I sat or I sat for my test in Arizona and this is the national one. And then I studied for my, well, I studied for my test actually when I was on maternity leave with my daughter and wow. I passed my test and my company worked with me. They trained me. Um, and then I got my own building kind of suddenly. Uh, I went from having no management experience to all of a sudden being in charge of a hundred plus employees. So that was, you know, trial by fire, but that was a great year of learning, um, try, really trial by error and trying to form the kind of leader that I wanted to be. Uh, so now I've been um, in long-term care as an administrator for a little over five years. Oh, wow. That's uh, pretty, in some ways that's similar to my story. Yeah. Uh, it kind of also was thrown into this in a very interesting way. It was definitely not on my list. Um, but that's very interesting that you evolved from a music therapy teacher um, mm -hmm. and you were doing that for the residents, I assume? Yeah, I worked with kids with special needs, hospice, um, psych, mainly a lot of gyro psych um, as well as adult psych. Yeah. So I'll tell you why that's fascinating to me, because many administrators um, are, they come primarily focused on the business side of things and their goal is to effectively operate a skilled nursing facility or assisted living facility or whatever it is in a way that is uh, obviously the residents get the highest level of care. But at the end of the day, they're doing it from a business perspective. They, they want to make sure the business is successful. Many of them are thinking about, you know, starting or opening or buying or partnering in their own day and building from there an empire, if you will, within this space. And which is not a bad thing necessarily. And without these types of entrepreneurs, yeah, our seniors would be left to other types of facilities, which probably wouldn't be the best thing. Um, but what's missing sometimes, and this is not at all a knock against administrators, because that, that is their role, 
but sometimes they may not understand or fully appreciate the nuances of what it's like to be a resident from a resident's perspective. How many administrators actually took the time to lay down in a resident's bed and see what the view is like, see what it feels like, needing a call bell light, you know, when the TV is not really in the right place and the bathroom smells and the, mm -hmm. and the resident is making noise or messy and the stuff on the floor and, and what it looks like when people walk by in the hallway. And just to really step into the shoes of a resident and understand the nuances of their needs. And right. that doesn't mean that you can't be a, an effective administrator that way. However, if you come from the more subtle, delicate entrance that you had to this space, you came through the music therapy, which is either end-of-life residents or you're dealing with other residents who you're, you're dealing directly with their emotional needs. And from there, you're building your professional leadership experience. I would assume that you'll be that much more prepared to deal with it. And, and it's not just from a resident's perspective. That means that when you have a nurse who's doing something or makes a serious error, instead of saying we have to fire her, and again, I don't know you well enough to know what you do, but uh, I'm going out on a limb here. Instead of saying, get out of here, I don't want to see you ever again, it would be more likely that you would your leadership style would, would kind of evolve around that. You know, is, there are leaders, you have leaders who lead by force, and, you know, the force of their personality and the very, very strong personality is dominating. And sometimes some situations call for that. If you're going to lead a battalion in, in the army and you're not that way, it might be a challenge. And right. some, it could be a soft leader, which earns everybody's respect because people understand that they get it. And they understand them and they're supporting them. And sometimes the decisions are not comfortable. Sometimes you have to say that a certain person cannot continue to work there or whatever they requested is denied. And it's the fourth time they want to go on vacation and you still have to turn it down because, you know, that's how life is right now. And I'm sorry. And, uh, and they're not going to like it. And they may be upset, but you'll let them cry in your office for a minute and comfort them and tell them how you understand. It. And you really will. I said this so many times, but I know since the first time I ever went on a plane and again, I don't knock against stewardesses, but maybe some of them. And you get that fake smile um you know how are you doing today and it's plastered on their face and again i'm sure they're good ones too and it's sometimes like frustrating like i'd rather you yell at me than make believe you're yeah you're smiling and you know what i would even tell my staff i don't know why i'm going out over here maybe i'm tired but uh sometimes you tell my staff like you can train somebody to smile and be polite and mm -hmm. they'll do it when they remember your training or you can actually teach them to be happy people and they'll do mm -hmm. it all the time naturally Yes. Yep. So if you really get it, you, your staff are going to gravitate towards you. Mm -hmm. They'll look up to you for leadership. They will appreciate who you are. They will aspire to be more like you in their own way. Um, and the, you know, going up, they'll relate to you that way. And going down, they'll relate to those who report to them or to the residents or to the visitors. They're less likely when they see somebody at the door at 7.35 or or even at 3.30, they just started their shift and they're, they're trying to, you know, they have many things to do. They're less likely to ignore them and maybe they didn't see them and make them wait there for 10 minutes because they legitimately are busy because they think from their perspective. Okay, and I'm going out on a limb here. But um, so tell us a little bit. Um, I know we jumped into leadership over here. Um, so maybe we'll start there. How, what are like the biggest challenges that you've had to deal with or you're confronted with managing your facility through 
COVID-19. And first of all, how bad was it in your facility? If you're comfortable sharing that. Sure. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, what were the biggest challenges and how did you deal with them? So we were one of the first buildings in our area to get COVID. Um, I, my director of nursing is here with me. This is Donna. Just want to say hello. Um, <laughs> we worked really hard. Um, you know, we got our first or our first symptomatic patient on March 25th. We're pretty sure we got it through. He was a dialysis patient. So we're pretty sure that it came in through dialysis. Um, he, he did have to go to the hospital to get dialysis. So we got his positive test result after he had discharged. Um, and just kind of from there, because we were the first one in our company and the first one in the area to get it, we kind of felt like we just kind of almost were throwing darts. Like, what do we do? You know? And so we just really got together as a team, used our knowledge and experience of infection control and just came up with a plan. And, um, we're glad we did because on April 1st, that was the first of 11 positives. And we have a small building. Our building can hold 52. And at the time, about 30 um, with short-term and long-term care. So we had 11 total positive over about a six-week period, six, seven-week period, and they just kept rolling in. We had 27 that we tested uh, that were symptomatic. Um, and our symptoms, what was weird is our symptoms were a low-grade temp and fatigue. That was it. That was what our patients were showing. Um, and as soon as they had that low-grade temp, Donna, our director of nursing, was on it, and we tested them, and we would wait for that 6 a.m. phone call of a positive, and we um, were, were shaped like a square, our building, so it was really hard to separate and make a separate unit, so we kind of jerry-rigged something, and we came up. We had tarps, and we had separate staff, and we just, we made it work, and the biggest thing we were worried about from what we had heard from other buildings was losing staff and staff turnover, and we were, I believe, through our leadership, um, just constantly educating staff about COVID and the proper PPE use and to not be afraid of it, like the media made everyone afraid of it, um, helped us really not lose a lot of staff. Um, we lost one CNA, one nurse, and unfortunately, one day we did lose all of our housekeepers. That was a really bad day. Um, we all kind of had to be housekeepers for a while, but um, you know, it was just the fear. It was the fear and not getting paid enough to risk bringing that home to their families. And I totally understand that. But, um, you know, we made sure our offices were safe places. Um, we had staff come in all the time and cry and yell and vent, and we were there for them. And that's what they needed at the time. Um, I really think that us having fun during the time too, I know that sounds weird, you know, healthcare people with their weird sense of humor, um, you know, everyone's going through a crisis and here we are having parties and eating food and we had to, everyone was working nonstop. I mean, we were all working long hours to make sure our residents were taken care of. So we tried to have fun while we were doing it. And uh, we kept, we kept most of our staff and that was just through really strong leadership. Wow. 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 So a couple of things. First of all, you just see how you mentioned in passing that you lost your entire housekeeping department in one day. Well, what happened? There? They chose not to come back because of Corona. Yeah. yeah. Um, part of the, where they lived, they were having a lot of um, positive coronavirus cases in their community. Um, and yeah, they were just terrified of it. They were refusing to work um, 
in our building because uh, we do have, we're a continuing care campus. So we have independent living, assisted living, and they were okay working there. But, you know, I kind of had to put my foot down with the rest of, with the housekeeping department manager and say, you know, they can't pick and choose. You know, they signed up for this. This is where they work. Um, and honestly, we didn't have any housekeepers, any laundry, anybody go back to our COVID unit. It was only really our nurses and CNAs. They were universal workers. And that was something, um, one of my long-term care residents, who's our resident council president, she unfortunately ended up with COVID and she was so impressed with how staff was. She's like, my nurse was cleaning my toilet. <laughs> like, what the heck? I never thought I'd see that, you know, but staff really stepped up because um, they care for our residents and they really, really care about what they do, that their passion for their job came out. Wow. Wow. So this is this is something that doesn't that is doesn't talk about, and nope. I'm sure this is, I'm sure this is not unique. But no, basically, no. This year, so just so I understand the concept. So basically, we use the term universal staffing. So the the nurses and the CNAs were everything. They were the dietists. They, they were the housekeepers, the maintenance directors, or whatever. And no one else walked into that unit besides for these specific people. Is that how it worked? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, myself and my DON would go back there um, just to check on the residents, um, to help with FaceTiming the families, uh, window visits, um, whatever they needed. But, yeah, our activity director didn't go back there. She provided activities for um, the nurses and the CNAs to do with the residents. Um, and, yeah, it was just nurses and CNAs mainly. And that worked out really well. The fact that we kept it so separate everything separate. I mean, they had a separate dining cart. They had separate condiments. They uh, Laundry was obviously separate. Um, when we had our infection control survey a few weeks ago, um, the surveyors were very impressed with how separate we kept everything. And they, they just kind of looked at us and said, maybe that's the key. Like you guys really separated everything and that's how you got it out of your building so fast. So, uh, so let's talk about how effective it was. So you said you had 11 residents that were positive, 11 positive cases. Did it grow beyond that? And I don't know if you're allowed to talk how many deaths that you had. Well, I mean, it's public knowledge now. So we okay. CDC, we had uh, three COVID related deaths. Um, and then, yeah, 11 positive and uh, a lot of negatives, which was really good. And what was weird, and my director of nursing will agree with this, is a lot of, we had roommate situations. One roommate would have it and the other one wouldn't. So that was always interesting to us because, um, yeah, there we go. Yep. Um, because that that just meant, I don't know, I you know, I kept telling our staff that meant that they're using proper PPE and they're hand washing and they're doing their proper infection control practices if both roommates don't have it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so the testing so quickly that we got the results back so fast so we knew we separated very quickly yeah got it so but once you knew one was positive and one was negative would you still keep them together in the same room no no okay so afterwards then you would separate them i wanted just uh a couple things here my, my brain is racing over here a little bit <laughs> to try to remember to get back to, to all the points here but um Let's start with one thing. So it, it really seems like you are completely in the dark as far as as what is what your next steps are to do. How are you supposed to manage it? Was there no? Let, let me let people see me too. Uh, was there 
was there any process in place? Was there, I'll give you back the space in a minute. Uh, was there any process in place um, at all from the Department of Health, from CDC telling you how to manage uh, this, how to manage the residents as they're coming in? Because it seems like you were really figuring stuff out on the fly, like a startup, as if, you know, with no guidance. We were. I mean, there was guidance, of course. But at that time, you know, the end of March, beginning of April, it was changing daily because they were still learning about it. And, you know, it was um, if anyone's showing symptoms, you know, isolate them. And we would if anyone was showing symptoms, we immediately moved them to our COVID unit and isolated them. Um, but it, it was an ever changing thing. Every day there was new guidance and we just made sure we were on top of it. Um, whether it was an email from the CDC or from the county. And I have to say our county was very helpful and very wonderful. Uh, Maricopa County in Arizona, the infection control nurses were on top of things. They were in contact with me daily, um, which really, really helped. And they were asking about our PPE supplies, making sure we were, we were okay. So that was wow. very helpful because I know not every county in every state was like that. So we were, we were lucky in that aspect. Yeah, you certainly are. And I, from other crises, you know, sometimes my personal experience has not been that way. Um, and from what I hear from others, it's, you know, punitive and, you know, penalizing as opposed to being supportive. And it's unfortunate because they have the resources and they're in the right place to be super helpful. And they have, you know, direct access to the knowledge that you need, direct access to the resources that you need. And if you have the right people, you know, with the right communication, take everyone's agendas to the side and just focus on the residents and keeping everybody safe. Um, you, you know, really everything is there. So that's actually very encouraging uh, to mm -hmm. hear that. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of Shabazz, if I'm saying that right? No? Uh, there's a greenhouse uh, form of nursing homes where they have, they have pods instead of units. I know here in Massachusetts is one facility this way. Uh, I think they have other places too. Um, where the, it's basically, it's supposed to be more like a home-like environment. It's not practical in older facilities. But they have the kitchen, they have the activities, they have like everything, like little apartments. And what you said earlier is, I believe, again, every place might manage a little bit differently, but they have, you know, the same person, you know, just like at home, right? You know, my wife uh, does like 12 different departments, that, right? In her home. There's also all the staff in all of those departments. And, and I'm like that outsider who comes in and says, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, all right. I don't know if she's listening. But, <laughs> but the point over here is that, but it works, right? In other words, it's more a more natural way of giving and receiving care is to, to streamline it through one person. And, you know, sometimes we're so busy being in our roles. A nurse also knows how to, how to cook, how to clean. When she goes home, she doesn't get her housekeeping staff to do it, right? Mm -hmm. and, when, and when the housekeeper goes home, and they have uh, an issue with a wound or a cut with a child, they don't go calling the directive nurses. They deal with it. We're, mm -hmm. we're people. We're very capable. So uh, I'm just thinking out loud, if what you experienced, what you were forced to do, um, it certainly was helpful from an infection control standpoint and apparently it was very effective in your facility. But at the same time, it might have even been, it seems like, and maybe I'm over-listening perhaps, but it seems like, <laughs> that is the the care delivery uh, was on a different level. Like this one nurse cleaning a toilet. Well, who do you think cleans the toilets in the nurse's house, right? It's the same nurse. It's not crazy. 
I know even for me as an administrator, they were painting outside. So I, you know, I begged the maintenance director to have a turn at painting it and they were plowing to let me plow. And everyone's like, wow, you know, look at this guy. He's instead of his office, he's doing it. I was having fun. But or even cleaning the floor, what you think administrator doesn't sweep the floor at home? Uh, they probably do. So the point is that it, again, there's regulations, there's training. There, it's not always practical, but when you're forced to do it, it kind of shows us a uh, a glimpse into a method of care delivery that might be on the on a different level. It might be in a way that it, that is a little bit more natural. And you see, the residents appreciate it. You know, they also can develop a relationship with the caregiver and the caregiver with the resident in turn. I don't know. I'm just thinking that there might be an opportunity in general. I'm not talking about for your facility specifically um, to explore that and to see to see how that works uh, further. Now yeah. let's let's just move on a little bit to um, ma to managing um, the residents and engaging them in meaningful activities uh, throughout this process. So we everybody knows that it was very very difficult, um, especially residents. Not only could they not be with family members. And not only could they not be visited by their spouse or their children, many times, you know, these people have visitors every single day or multiple times a week uh, for a lot of them. And again, just like we see family members all the time, you know, they see family members all the time. And being cut off and isolated is extremely painful and challenging. But at the same time, um, and not only that, they're also cut off from each other, right? So you didn't have them all, I assume you didn't have them all gathering in your main activity space. And you weren't doing that. So how did you manage, A, to keep them engaged, and B, to have them feel uh, less isolated? Sure. Well, thinking, um, you know, when the we had to actually close our doors to visitors, which was March 13th, I'll never forget, Friday the 13th. Friday. Um, we, uh, you know, we still were doing hallway activities. So they would come to their doorways. We would do music. We'd do bingo, trivia, all of that. But then shortly after, when we did have our first positive, it was definitely everyone was eating in their rooms, um, staying in their rooms, door closed. Um, mm -hmm. Hard. I mean, as a nurse, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to not know what's going on back there and have to have to keep checking. You know, um, you worry about falls. You worry about, obviously, depression, psychosocial. Um, we are really lucky. We have an amazing activity director, and she um, knows our residents so well that she uh, created, you know, little packets for them to do in their room, which some of their favorite activities, if they enjoyed more group activities, she would go in there one-on-one uh, -on -one, socially distant um, and, you know, play games with them or do trivia, bingo. We had a, a group wide building wide bingo going on where every day she'd put numbers out and go room to room and tell everyone the numbers. And that was fun. So just getting really creative. Um, we all helped with uh, FaceTime and Skype. That was something super important to us to make sure the families were still being able to see their loved ones. And that really has helped a lot. Um, window visits, you know, we're in Arizona. So right now it's, <clears throat> you know, 105 degrees. So it's really hard to do window visits. Wow. Really hot. So yeah. also, you know, I know a lot of states that are starting to open up a little bit can do outside visits and that's mm -hmm. just can't do it's too hot. So once our COVID had run its course and about two weeks after it had, right. we were sure that the positive, you know, was gone and we had started cleaning our COVID unit. Then we started letting the residents um, come out social distance with their masks on 
Um, and Lori, my activity director, would take them out one by one outside while it was still nice out. It wasn't 100 degrees yet. Um, just mm -hmm. get them out, get them some vitamin D. Um, that really helped a lot. And just them being able to see each other in the hallway from a distance helped the mood so much. Um, we are doing very small groups right now, but again, in our huge dining room where they can socially distance with three or four people, do exercise groups, bingo, karaoke, all of those things. And it's definitely improved the mood. Um, but it was a challenge really toward the end of that six weeks, the residents were really getting down. Um, so it was just trying with all of the staff to make sure to spend that one-on-one -on -one time with them. Well, sorry about that. Um, that, that. So that is fascinating. And you really kind of had to just figure it out. And it seems like you did a fantastic job of that. And it's, it kind of brings out uh, two things. I'm just thinking from uh, you know, a management standpoint with the doors closed, uh, that could be a very high anxiety for you know, uh, for, for administration, for nursing. Um, you know, walking up and down the hallways and peeking into rooms, you know, you see so much. If a resident fell, I, I would be scared. Uh, how do you know? I don't know. That just sounds very scary to manage that way. But I guess you don't have a choice. And uh, well, so what, how did that work practically? Like the nurses would go in, peeking their heads in, and then closing the door? Yes, it was a continual everybody walking the hallways. And then, you know, with the med passes and all of that, you got to see them again. And then the CNA would go in next, and they were continually following up on what was going on in their rooms, seeing if they need any needed anything, even if they didn't have their call light on. It was just over and over and over again that people were being observed. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Also, with our COVID unit, um, you know, they were being checked on every two hours, all vitals done every two hours anyway. So um, they were constantly being checked on as well. And obviously more than that too. But, um, but yeah, that's how we checked. But yeah, it is very, it's, you know, this whole COVID thing, you totally are do everything opposite of what you were taught. I mean, you know, reusing PPE and keeping the doors closed. And um, I mean, I just went over in an all staff meeting this morning about involuntary seclusion. And I'm like, that's what I felt like we were doing with our residents because they had to stay in their room. But we were being told that that's what they had to do. So it's just you feel like it's every going against everything. <laughs> that you've learned as a leader and as an administrator and a director of nursing, yeah. but it's for everyone's safety. So you have to make sure, like I said, the biggest thing is education and making sure they, the residents themselves and the families understood what was going on as well. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. Um, so let me just, as we wrap up here, um, cause I see that we're, we're hitting the, the time limit here. Um, what do you think is like the number one biggest takeaway for you um, from this as far as, you know, looking at what we've done and what we've learned to do to manage through uh, to manage through coronavirus, you know, in your facility for your staff, your residents? Is there any one particular thing that jumps out at you that you would want to leave our listeners with today? For me, I believe like I just said, communication. Um, like I said earlier, education with the staff, constant education with the staff and residents to get rid of that fear because, you know, the media just, I mean, I got scared watching the news and I was in it, you know, and it scared me. 
So just that education from the CDC, from the state, from the county, and then communication with families. Um, in Arizona, the media does not like long-term care very much. I know that's true nationwide, but my biggest fear was to be on the news, uh, to be honest. So right away when we had our first positive, we called every single family member and let them know, even though the gentleman was out of the building. And then when we got our first positive in the building, we again called every single family member to let them know. I know that's not feasible in a 200 bed facility, but um, it worked for us. And then now we've gotten everyone's email and communicate regularly with them via email and also go to meetings. We have go to meetings with the families. Wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, that is a huge piece over communication. Um, you know, if you, if you effectively share bad news uh, before they hear about it or even after they hear about it, but before they confront you about it, and explain to them this is what happened. This is this is what we did. Maybe we, you know, this is what we could have done. This is how we did with it going forward. You know, people are not angry and upset. They might have anxiety. They might not be happy with the news, but they're not angry or upset with you and with the way that you managed. Uh, you're in a, you're in a thankless industry right now. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and you know, especially like you said, you know, in Arizona they don't like long term care. It makes no sense because all those people don't like long term care. The, uh, a very large percentage of them are going to end up in long-term care. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is like this misnomer. This gets me mad when I hear people talking this way. Is that There's as if us, uh, us guys and those guys, you know, there's world and then there's nursing home residents. These nursing home residents were many of the same people who lacked long-term care, but they were also, these were the people who are your teachers. These were the people who are every member of society. And many of them are, you know, from the greatest Americans that they, you know, that there are and. I, I said, especially you know, when I had some downtime, to enjoy going room to room and understanding who these people were and still are many, you know, many times. So, yeah, so you don't like long-term care, but, you know, who's going to care for you when you hit that age? So a lot of people want to age in place and want to stay home, but there are nursing homes, right? And they're not closing yet. So there's obviously still a need for it. And that is fascinating. Thank you very much, uh, Brian Schmitz, for coming on the Nursing Home podcast as well as don I, I we didn't officially meet but don what's your last <laughs> well thank you for having us this was very nice okay amazing thank uh really uh for those uh who are watching now um on linkedin for those who are watching on facebook or listening to this at the nursing home podcast.com head on over to the nursing home podcast.com to listen to our other conversations uh, with others in the industry about how they're managing coronavirus from an operations standpoint, from a service provider standpoint, and and also lots of other fascinating episodes there. So again, thank you, Donna. Thank you, Rebrian, for coming on that podcast. I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with all of your friends in the nursing home industry and just tell them to head on over to the nursinghomepodcast.com. Have an awesome day.